CabanaDeprived.com is proud to present Top 8 Magic Podcast with Michael J. Flores and Brian David Marshall. Brought to your ears thanks to FaceToFaceGames.com. Hey everybody, Brian David Marshall here with Michael J. Flores for another episode of Top 8 Magic. Brought to you by... What are we brought to you by? Crying Baby. Crying Baby. Background music. No jackhammers. Uh, Crying Baby coming back for an encore. Circle back. What what if those motorcycle guys, kid? What if we were like in a hallway, which we are? What if like the person with the stroller is just walking up and down the hallway, like to just try to soothe the baby? Yeah. That baby's gonna be famous. (laughs) But you can see like years later, like their resume for whatever they're like. You know, for when they were trying to become a their their I am their their first IMDb entry yeah. is crying baby on top eight magic podcast. Yeah, yeah. We made it. <laughs> True story. What is up? Not too much. Uh, just getting done with work, hanging out. Going to go see my friend uh, Evan Dorkin is doing a signing at Forbidden Planet today. I think you have to say multiple Eisner Award winning. Writer and artist Evan Dorgan. Sure, that's. He's also that, right? He is. How many Eisners has he won? I don't know. I've been there for at least one. I think he's won two. I think he's won two as well. But three is not outside the realm of possibility. Yeah. So. so they don't televise the Eisners. So. No. I don't actually get to like dress up in a tuxedo with my wife and mix cocktails, and you know have a party and then like bet in an Eisner pool. Um, I used to. Like, read who was nominated for all the Eisners every yeah, year. Yeah, I generally do. And then just, like, read their stories. Like, say, oh, this got nominated. But I haven't done that in years. Yeah. Also, I just like four-color superhero stories. And, like, all this kind you of... Get, is it like the Oscars? You're just, like, so tired? You know? Uh, uh, Eisner's so black and white. Is that your hashtag? I don't understand. I'm just saying, like... I mean, I guess I do like some things. You know, I used to. I went through this phase where I read a lot of Oni comics and Astronauts in Trouble. But really, in my heart of hearts, Astronauts in Trouble was done by future Walking Dead artist Charlie Out Edlard, right? Okay. All I'm saying is true or false. I like a guy with a fin on his head punching people through a building. <laughs> that was a reference. Yeah, a callback. Is what a, that's called. One that's episode. Called a, that's called a callback. Mike. Callback. Yeah, it's called a callback. I actually don't like that that much. What I like is, you know, bikini-clad warriors hitting each other with swords. Sure. They don't last very long. Bikinis are not very uh, protective. Sure. Actually, I like all of it. What's your favorite comic book story of all time? Detective Comics 500? No. Uh, I mean, it's really cliched, but it's probably... uh, It's either Superman Annual... With Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, right? How is that cliched? For the man who loves everything? The man who loves everything. I mean, like... You know, you told me about that when I went and go... I, I had never read it. It wasn't one of his more famous things. Yeah, I had read uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, but yeah. I hadn't read the annual. But, right, yeah. the man who loves everything. Yeah, it's either that or it's Days of Future Past. Just those two issues. Um, of Uncanny X-Men. Did 141, 142. Did you like the movie? I don't dislike the movie. Um... You know, like, uh, fuck Bishop, right? Like, why is he in that movie? I, I just get out of here. I hate mutants with guns. It's 
stupid. They're mutants. They don't need guns. Cable has a gun. Yeah, Cable's stupid. Cable is fucking stupid. Deadpool has a gun. Deadpool is fucking stupid. Domino has a gun. Say it again. Say I it can't, again. I can't say yeah, it. I know that you can. Right, I was a, I was setting you up for that. There's an exception to every rule, Mike. Uh, but but honestly, fuck Domino. Then you know what? I don't care. I'm willing to. I'm willing to make some hard cuts. I, I, you're cutting I, I, Domino. I am. I'm willing to make some hard cuts here, in order to like just make her. Uh, cutting Deadpool is crazy. Just make her an inhuman. Make him an inhuman. Just go away. Get him out of there. Like I just think mutants with guns. No, no, like, no, they, they, it's just stupid. With the Fox acquisition, they don't need to make him inhuman anymore. I know. I know. Did you see the announcement? Jonathan Hickman is suddenly Jonathan Hickman will be writing all the X books. Oh. All the X books will be written by Jonathan Hickman. Do you know why? Because they're out of the doghouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was a precipitous drop in X Men quality for the last couple of years, man. Yeah. And they put shitty artists on it. That's the other thing. Who like they do, they have like this crazy renaissance of mainstream comics right now there's so many good artists that don't even have to be famous they can still be good they just put their most rando not good artists on all these X-Men books it's like how cliched can we make the make the female characters you know yeah oh another time travel story against apocalypse in ancient Egypt like yeah, that hasn't been done I'm not a big I'm not a big apocalypse guy that's after my time man really yeah I mean Apocalypse versus the original X-Men is like mid-80s. No. It's like... It's probably early. Maybe maybe it is. Like 87. No. I know when... Because it's slightly before I started reading comics. I started reading comics so, apo- apocalypse about is, 89. So Apocalypse is J.R.J.R., right? Like J.R.J.R. drew the first Apocalypse? Uh, you might be right on this, but it's Louise Simonson and, uh, and John Bogdan. Right? It's like really the... Uh, uh, well, we, we're not allowed to look this up, but I think it's a little later, but that's fine. Well, he was already a big deal when I started reading comics. Yeah. And I didn't start until somewhere in 1989-ish. Yeah. yeah, my X-Men numbers are all, all a little weird, because I, I like kind of read X-Men out of asynchronously to when it came out. Yeah. You know, I was like catching up, because those were expensive back issues. All oh, those you John, remember? All those John Burns. I would oh. have to track all those down. I need X-Men 108. I need the Alpha Flight story. By the time when I started reading, they were already, like, reprinting classic X-Men, and these stories weren't even that old. Yeah. Right? But there was, like, an extra buck. But then they'd have, like, a backup story of just all White Queen and her Hellfire Club get up explaining why this was, uh, you know, third-wave feminism or whatever. I'm really the powerful one by putting on this outfit was, like, (laughs) you know, a big part of her, her backup story. And, you know, 13-year-old me, I bought it. Whatever you say, Emma. Like, like I'm going to disagree with Emma. Like, I'm going to disagree with this sentiment from Emma. So, let me ask you something. When you talk about comics, uh, obviously, you talk about X-Men, you talk about the death of Jean Grey. You know, you talk about... Which death of Jean Grey? Because she's back about again. the death of Jean DeWolf. Do you remember that? Yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, one of the first Peter David stories. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was great. It was very controversial that he actually sold that story because uh, he was in sales and yeah. the editor for that book was Jim Owsley. Jim Owsley? Who, does he have another name? He does. He's now known as Christopher Priest. But I think um, Priest is such an underrated writer. He is. But the belief was that Jim Owsley was secretly writing the comic at the time. Really? And just like finding someone in the sales department 
some no-talent guy in the sales department named Peter David to, like, share writing credit and then, like, obviously for some, you know, under-the-table money so he could edit and write his own book. This is obviously not true. It's funny, well, Peter David... Because is, Peter David has gone on to be one of the superstar writers yeah. of, of the field. First of all, both Priest and Peter David are both outstanding yeah. superhero comics writers. But, but nobody believes someone could just come out of the sales department and make a comic as good as The Death of Gene DeWolf. Didn't you tell me that Cliff Chiang was just, like, the same thing? He was just, like, uh... Cliff, yeah, Cliff Chang was an editor who just decided to teach himself to draw. And now he's just like this. He's just one of the best. Utter, just insane a, he's kind superstar. of like a He's kind of like a goat, actually. Yeah, he would just... So I, we have a mutual friend yeah. who I can't mention because he doesn't like his name mentioned on anything. He's, he's you've Cthulhu. met him. You've met him. He's Cthulhu. Uh, but he would... And Cliff Chang would just draw yeah. and just fax drawings to him all day long. So this is long enough ago that, you know, people just had fax machines. Yeah. And you would just, like, see the progress of Cliff Chang just, like, pooling up out of this, like, spool of fax paper onto he, the floor in front of him all day himself. long. Yeah. Um, Super but, cool. Yeah, so Cliff Chang is, what's he known for? Wonder Woman? Wonder Woman. Long, Wonder, Wonder, Wonder Woman run with yeah. uh, Brian Azzarello, Yeah, I Wonder say. Woman run is Which, probably the most famous. And, no. He yep. is sidekicked a... Brian K. Vaughn right now on, oh, yeah. on Paper Girls. So I'm sure oh, he's okay. sure. papering I think, his I think, house with $100 bills. You think, you think Paper Girls is, is more popular than Wonder Woman was in its height when they were doing it? No, but I think that everything that Brian K. Vaughn does, the artist... Becomes a movie? Well, the artist just gets paid like DI. Okay. Right, so like, if you're, if, if you're like, oh, Saga was the number one and number two best-selling graphic novel, like, like the last two years. Yeah. The best number one and number two is crazy, and he just gives like half the money away. So yeah. I think like... I don't know. That's just how he rolls. Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so anyway, Je- death of Gene DeWolf, death of Gene Gray, you know, death of Superman. For how do you feel about the death of Gideon? So I saw a little bit about this on Twitter today. People were really you, upset. Like, you retweeted this or something because a, a, a card came out. Was it Gideon's sacrifice? Was yeah. the story? Yeah. And how do I feel? Yeah, how do you feel? Does it, I mean, it's, it's People sort of are, loaded, like, really... That's what I'm saying. It's sort of a loaded question. Like, I mean, I'm like, oh, this is, like... I mean, so I have, like, a real, like, I know how the sausage is made kind of approach to yeah. world building, right? I've built some worlds. I've written, created a bunch of characters. I, I know some of the... You know, so I'm not, like... I can sort of come at it in a slightly detached way. Am I heartless I, if I say I don't care? Well, no, I mean, I... That's I mean, Urza died. You. Gerard died. I mean, those were important characters in the magic mythos before many of these players had people, ever heard people, of a planeswalker. People seem upset that Bolas doesn't die, right? He gets basically imprisoned in the Phantom Zone. That's what I'm going to call it. I mean, first of all, if you had to pick, just all other things held equal, you got to pick somebody's going to live. Liliana or Gideon, from a cosplay standpoint. It ain't going to be Gideon, right? Liliana is the most iconic magic character since the Herloon Minotaur. Sure. Well, actually, Bolas is pretty freaking iconic. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't care at all. Yeah, okay. I mean, Gideon's been on some good cards, many fairly middling cards, some very good cards. Like, has he been on a lot of unbeatable cards? No. Liliana. You, you seem to think Ally of Zendikar was a pretty unbeatable card when it was good, out. It's a very good card. Very good card. It. Okay. It's not unbeatable. You, you may have tempered your enthusiasm for it since it's got away. It's it's very good. I, I, I didn't particularly love 
uh, the play patterns that sure. That no, that's more fair. It. That's more fair. I mean, I'd say like what's a much more unbeatable Planeswalker in center would be like Elspeth Six. Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty hard to beat. The original Elspeth Four, Elspeth Tyrell, I think, yeah, was much more unbeatable than Gideon Ally of Zendikar. I think that thing leveled up, and the the creatures it made went to the air. How do you feel about Gideon Blackblade? So this is the new Gideon Planeswalker. It's a mythic. Uh, it's got four loyalty, and then its static ability is: if it's your turn, Gideon is a four-four human soldier creature with indestructible that is still a planeswalker, and uh, it has prevent all damage that will be dealt to Gideon during your turn. So, you know, just free attacker. So yeah. So on, it's on your side. It's pretty similar to like a a true name nemesis, right? Sure. Yeah. Except that I could, I could like dismember it. You could easily kill it on your own turn. Yeah, there's right? a card that's like minus five, minus five, instant, right? Somewhere in this set. So you could do some things even on... Yeah, but it's got two other abilities. Yes. And, and it, some loyalty. Yes. So plus one on this is up to one other target creature you control of your, gains your choice of Vigilance, Lifelink, or Indestructible until end of turn. And it has minus six, so this is kind of interesting. You know, it has a, one, a single plus ability and then... What we, you know, what we call an ultimate. Minus six, exile target, non-land permanent. Uh, I think this card is very, very good. How does it compare to Ally of Zendikar? Uh, I mean, it's tough to compare them directly. This has less mana cost. <laughs> I mean, like... So, therefore, it is better? Um, well, let's start with uh, the static ability. All right. The static ability is, like, always getting most Gideons, like, make him into a guy yeah. for free every turn. So you basically just always just get two abilities per turn, right? Right. Like, that's one way of thinking about it. Cool. Right? So in a way, he has fewer abilities, but um, at the same time has, a, like, because like, he only has two other abilities, but he always gets the make him a guy, ability, mm. right? So um, I think that's pretty cool. And I just wanted to look this up because I want to give the player a correct, correct uh, credit. So a player called Zach Emanuel, he actually commented on uh, Top Level Podcast actually about this. And he said that there's some pretty cool things you can do with Gideon Blackblade. Like if you play it with Knight of Malice. So let me just interrupt you for a second. You understand I don't actually ever listen to podcasts. Yeah. I've listened to like three podcasts. Uh, three episodes of a podcast. I've yeah. listened to probably an episode of Limited Resources. Yeah. Because my friend Marshall does it. I've listened to an episode of What a Crock. Such a Crock. Such a, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I've listened to Tear Them Apart. I've listened to two episodes of that, actually. Yeah. That's Paul and Evan's podcast about horror movies. That's about the extent of my podcast. And I've listened to some episodes of Serial because everyone did. But like, you know that it exists. But I podcast. know that your other podcast exists. Yeah. But... I've literally never listened to an episode of it. It's okay. I, I don't mean that. I'm just... So, but the reason I say this is, if you have spent an hour yeah. with Patrick talking about Gideon Blackblade, you should tell me so we don't... No, I actually wanted to give credit to this okay. other player. Okay, all right. I'm just saying, I just want to make sure I'm not making you talk about, like, 20 minutes of something you've already talked for oh, an no, hour Oh, no, no. This is... I haven't talked about this okay. at all. Okay. He, he actually commented okay. on, on, okay. A, okay. on a YouTube thread. All right, good. Um, and the amount of time I was oh, planning, never mind. Then I do listen to your podcast. Planning to spend 
talking about it was less than the preamble you gave me about not listening to my other podcast. Anyway, uh, you can play with Knight of Malice. You can play Knight of Malice and you play Gideon, right? You can give, like, the Knight of Malice Vigilance, for example, so it can defend the Gideon yeah. uh, with Vigilance. Nice. And it will have a plus one boost on account of you having a white permanent. I mean, and then the next turn, you can you can give the Knight of Malice Indestructible, then cast Kaya's Wrath. Oh. Right? Like, that's, like, a pretty cool seat. That's super sick. And then, like, and you, I mean, now you're swinging with, you know. And then we're swinging for seven that turn, too. Yeah. So the thing is, the Knight of Malice has this weird ability, which is hexproof from white, but you can target it with white because right, yeah. it's, it's not shroud from yeah, white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so, awesome. I, I, that just sounds like a very real basis for a deck. Yeah, like, don't you want to kind of play with, like, black-white knights now? Yeah, well, I mean, black it's already kind of a deck, right? It's been at various times. You, yeah, you, but, still, get to, you still get to play with uh, History of New Banalia and History of Banalia and all that stuff. I mean, you're going to be pretty glutted at Insane Threes, though. Gideon is a, is a good three. I think it's funny with History of Banalia is, like, the third best three in your black-white knights deck. <laughs> like, because there are other threes, I think, that are better than History of Banalia, even. Yeah, that's super sweet. Yeah. I would absolutely do that. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah. Your mana's pretty good, right? You have eight tools and... Yeah. You know, and if you're playing knights, you could probably just play Unclaimed Territory, too. Well, Although Kaya's Unclaimed Wrath. Territory won't help you for this or Kaya's, Kaya's Wrath. Wrath. That's, yeah, I, I never mind. Do yeah. That. But you, what you can do is play Oath of Kaya. I'm wondering uh, if... Card, by the way. All right, let's... Okay. It's I think... I mean, it's every time I have a different best card in the set, but... By the way, it, it is the most... Um, it is my early and uncontentious... Most Michael J. card in the set. Oath of Kaya? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's absolutely like. Commence the end game isn't your most Michael J. card. That's just like no, a Dragonlord's prerogative this and this a Kiga at once. This is deal three damage, deal three life. Yeah, gain, gain, three, three, da- gain three life, deal three damage. Obviously, already, um, it's black and white. And yeah. let's be honest, Mike, you're Orzov. Well, you are. In Soul? In Soul. Um, Raph Levy Look, once asked me if I always played black-white, yeah. which is a funny thing to yeah. ask me, considering yeah. I'm known for playing other colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure you are. But, and uh, it's just, it's it's to me, this is the most Michael J. card in the set. I think it might be the best card in the set. It's really, really good. You want to read it off, but it goes. So, Oath of Kaya is one white, one white and a black for a legendary enchantment. When Oath of Kaya enters the battlefield, it deals three damage to any target, and you gain three life. So, it's just like a lightning helix. Yeah. Then it has whenever an opponent attacks a planeswalker you control with one or more creatures, Oath of Kaya deals two damage to that player and you gain two life. Yeah. So this is a dumb, dumb card. Yeah. Like, I think this card by itself like utterly invalidates any concept of red aggro that I we mean, were gonna have in the format. Yeah. Utterly. Which is very ironic because while this is the most Michael J card, the red is the most Michael J deck. Yeah. So. I mean, like, the idea of playing with a Viachino Pyromancer when somebody could have this in their deck is just kind of depressing to me. That I would have that card in my deck. Like, it, it's horrible. <laughs> right? It's, it's just horrible. Yeah. Like, I just don't even know how you play against this. Right. Like, it's, like I think the only way that you can play against this kind of a card in a format where people will play this kind of a card and play Planeswalkers you might want to attack 
is to not play fair. Like if if you're just like, all right, I'm just guys and creature removal, and I got a curve or whatever. I mean, like that's I mean, horrible. If I, like if I have Gideon, Black Blade, you kind of have to attack him. Yeah, these guys are in the same deck. Yeah, you kind of have to attack it, and that's just like you're you're five you're five behind already at that point. Well, and I mean, just think about the deck we were talking about. Like, let's say you play, like, six or eight black and white knights. History of Benalia. What if your dudes were just some knights, History of Benalia, that's all your dudes, and then, except you, like, level up into Lyra Dawnbringer at the top, right? Right. And then the rest of your deck is just, like, maps and, you know, planeswalkers. Just advantage-bearing cards, like, super efficient removal and stuff that makes sure you hit your land drops. And isn't that like a? Isn't that like an? And you could play like the elder spell. Because why wouldn't you play the elder spell? Right. Are there like good ultimates in black and white that you can get to? Yeah. Not sure. Right. Like every time you just get even near, you just like you kick your planeswalker up a couple times, and then people just can see. Is that how that works? How, how about colorless planeswalkers? Can you put some colorless oh. planeswalkers in this deck? How about that? Well, uh, I think Soren is actually oh, the yeah, most so, insane so, so Planeswalker so, so, so <laughs> another another best card in the set. It's insane. Soren Vengeful Bloodlord. So, uh, speaking of your uh, podcast mate, yeah, uh, Patrick Chapin called this set a masterpiece on Twitter. Oh, really? Yeah. He said, "I don't think this is just a good set." He's like, "I think this set is a masterpiece." Is this the first set that has play design? No, they've been on a bunch of things, but this is probably their, this is probably, like, the set that they've worked on the longest and had the most complete personnel on. I mean, this card is insane. So, Soren Vengeful Bloodlord. Two, white, black, legendary Planeswalker Soren. As long as it's your turn, creatures and Planeswalkers you control have lifelink. Yeah. As long as it's your turn. Um, when do you attack, Brian? Do you attack on theirs? I, uh, I mean, that's the only time they'll let me attack. I would attack on their turn, too, if I yeah. could. Uh, I'm sure there's a static ability that says, as long as it's not your turn, you can attack. I, I don't know. There's, like, all sorts of stuff going on here. Uh, it's got four loyalty, plus two. Soren Ventral Bloodlord deals one damage to target player or planeswalker. Okay. Not that big a deal. One damage. Oh, by the way, planeswalkers also have lifelink. Uh, minus X. Return target creature card with converted mana cost X from your graveyard to the battlefield. That creature is a vampire in addition to its other types. So it's got, like, just a zombify ability. Yeah. It has four starting loyalties, so you can just zombify a four straight up. Like, you can zombify a three and it'll have lifelink or whatever. (laughs) Right, right. But it's just pinging ability. It's also sweet. It gives all your planeswalkers lifelink. So, for example... If you had a Gideon that was a creep, well, I guess Gideon's always got life. But what if you had, I don't know, Sark and the Master? Sark and the Master, yes, I was just going to say. That card is also insane. I mean, look, it's it's just insane card after insane card, but it's a specific type of insane card. This is, remember when I used to talk about Battlecruiser magic? Yeah. When I was just like, somebody's got a gun to your head, who do you really pick? And you're like, Jason Primeval type, because that's who you would pick in Battlecruiser magic. People talk about all these other things they might want to do, and the answer is Jason Primeval Titan. Right? This is the era of Jason Primeval <laughs> Titan again. I mean, Jace the Mind Sculptor 
Canadian listeners at home, not like some weak-ass Jace. Right. Sark and the Masterless. How great is that? I mean, Feather is also the best card in the set. <laughs> There's so many best cards in the set. Um, so Sark and the Masterless is the one. We, I think we talked about this one already. Three RR for a five legendary Planeswalker. Whenever a creature attacks you or a Planeswalker you control, each dragon you control deals one damage to that creature. But what if you don't have any dragons, Brian? Plus one until end of turn. Each Planeswalker you control becomes... A 4-4 red dragon creature and gains flying. How insane is that? If you have, like, three Planeswalkers in play, they still have their own abilities, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> they don't stop having their right. abilities. And then it also has minus three, create a 4-4 red dragon creature token. So the fail state on this card is five mana, for a make a dragon. Yes. And they still have to kill it, right? And if they try to kill it, like, if you tag him this with, like, Oath of Kaya and just its own, just its own static ability, like... Like the penalty for trying to attack Sark and the Masters or any other Planeswalkers you might have in play are severe. Yeah. Yeah, this card's super sweet. Like, you can't, you just literally can't play just fair stuff, I don't think. Like, you're just, everything is too good. So I think I'm just mono the Elder Spell decks. Okay. Right? Everybody's just going to be, like, mad mad Planeswalkers, right? I mean, I mean like... The, I mean, the, the argument is to not do that, right? Then if everyone's just going to be running Elder Spells, and is there some way to just play the red deck? And How do you play the red deck against Oath of Kaya and Soaring? Like those, like, what if you're just like, all right, my opponent's got six of their cards are Oath of Kaya and Soren, and four of the and four of the the celebrant. What's his name? Black white for the one two. Do you see this? Yeah, card? yeah, combat celebrant, right? Uh, uh, and four of that in, in their deck. Cruel celebrant. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's where they're starting. I mean, I don't even know what the other uh, what the other fifty cards in their deck are. I mean, do you want to play in this room? <laughs> <laughs> this card is. Dopey. Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's like, there's like this interlocking. First of all, we we, we definitely need a unclaimed territory for planeswalkers. Isn't there one? Is there one? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? There is one in the set. Are you kidding me? It's better than unclaimed territory. It makes two two colors. Oh God, interplanar beacon. You're right. Yeah. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> Just saying. You can play like a two-color deck and splash for Bolas. Yeah. Which I will do. But one of my colors will be black so I can cast the Elder Spell. How do you feel about uh, Mobilized District? Uh, this seems like a classic Michael J card to I don't me. think it's that good. So Mobilized District is a land. You tap to add colorless. It has four. Mobilized District becomes a 3-3 citizen creature with vigilance until end of turn. It's still a land... This ability costs less, one less to activate for each legendary creature and planeswalker you control. So the problem with this card is, it's not stocking stones. So stocking stones is permanent, right? It turns on as permanent. Sure. But if you want to have like a temporary creature land, like more like a fairy conclave or a treetop village, which are kind of cards that I've always liked, a deck full of legendary per, uh, permanents like creatures and planeswalkers doesn't need this card. Just literally don't need it. Oh, I can make a guy out of my land. Who cares? <laughs> I wish I just had a land that tapped for mana so I could cast my insane planeswalker. <laughs> or like, 
Wouldn't you rather just have like seven loose mana so that you can just like cast the elder spell and bolus in one turn? Right. So if you're just like you, you're at seven mana, let's say your your opponent just whatever they're tapped out for something, and you just have two other planeswalkers. There's like all right, uh, cast bolus, kill my own planeswalkers, level up bolus, kill you. I mean, right. like seven mana literally. Elder Spell Bolus kills your opponent if you have two other Planeswalkers. Not a problem. Um, if your deck is full of Planeswalkers. And the beauty about this is if you just play four of all these cards, you just have the Elder Spell in your hand, so if your opponent is going off with Planeswalkers, you just kill them. You <laughs> should be like, oh, cool. You know, give my Sarkin two loyalty or four loyalty and, you know, brain the brains out of your Planeswalkers. Um, how affable is Ugin? I think it's fine. I mean, it's like closing time affable or like just Ugin the ineffable is six for a legendary planeswalker. Ugin, color spells you cast cost two last to cast, uh, four loyalty, plus one exile a top card of your library face down and look at it. Uh, create a 2 2 color spirit creature it makes token. It's a morph, it's kind of cute. Sort of, right? But it makes a token though. And then when that token leaves the battlefield, put the exile card into your hand. Which is a weird ability. Yeah. I mean, like, basically it just creates a ca- uh, creature that lets you draw a card. Kind of, but it, when it's it not dies. really up to it's you. It's a solemn simulacrum. Not really. I block! What if I don't block? What if I block? What if you don't attack? I don't know how much attacking is going to be going on. What's its other ability? Uh, minus three, destroy target permanent that isn't, that's one or more colors. So, the thing that I like about this card is, first of all, it's pretty expensive. So I like that I get to say effable a lot. So, no, it is, it is effable. It is effable. That's what I was asking you, and so, you looked at me like... I didn't understand what you were saying. I didn't understand you what you were... You looked at me like I just told you I listened to five episodes of your podcast in a row. Like, what? No, you're lying. Well, okay, here's the thing. I didn't realize you were being crass. You know, oh. you're usually so, so professional. Yeah. As you don't say mythic championship. Oh no! I tweeted today. Oh, they, I saw. They can't find me a dollar anymore. They they probably can. Damn it! Well, I don't know if they can make you pay them though. Sure. Actually, they told me some money. Are there, are there wages they can garnish? God damn it! Yes. All right. So the thing I think was cute is just like, ah, uh, I can have Ugin and play. And then I'm going to cast so many things for less mana. Like, if you have, like, a handful of twos. <laughs> yeah, but you got to get to six first. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do you like Karn better? Karn's pretty powerful. It's also four. Yeah. The thing that I was thought it was novel. I, like, I really do like your decision-making process for Planeswalkers. Yeah. Well, this one costs three. So, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I'm imagining these scenarios, right? Like, a three-casting cause Planeswalker has a spot, but he's in contention against cards like Oath of Kaya. Okay? A four-casting cause Planeswalker better be better than uh, Chandra Fire Art, Flame Artisan, or whatever it's called. Because if it's not, it's not good enough. Right? Chandra Flame Artisan is dumb. Right. Okay? It's like a personal howling mine that nugs you for seven while Wheel of Fortuning. That's everything I ever wanted. <laughs> everything, everything anyone ever wanted, right? And then you are like Soren. Like, the, that's the bar. So you're like, all right, Karn, you better be doing something real good if you're going to get a slot in my deck. Because I, 
how many fours can you possibly play in your deck? Six? How many of them are already going to be Kaya's Rats? Depending on your colors. You sure. can't just play infinite fours, right? Now, fives are even more of a premium. How many are you going to have in your deck? Two? Four? It's not like you have, like, oh, I have room for eight five-casting calls Planeswalkers. Yeah, if you really wanted to test the limits of whether or not the red deck could beat you, <laughs> that would be a way to do it. Sure. Um, switch, switching, switch topics for a second, because obviously we talk about these cards, we're going to talk about standard, but I want to think about modern for a little bit. Yeah. We're, we're, like, a little more than... Actually, like, a week from today is day one of Mythic Championship London, right? Wait, when, when are you flying out there? I am not. What? No, I'm going to be home, hanging out, watching May, wait, it like normal on. people. Maybe home? Maybe home. <laughs> is, there, is, there a, is there a chance? No, no, no. I'm not going to It's not going to be one of those things where they, like, sent the last-minute flight for Pakula so that he could do coverage on, like, day three? No, no, That no. happened once. Yeah, the, we're, we're not in those times anymore. Yeah. But, uh, no, I... I'm, I have plans for my weekend. I'm going to play in the pre-release. I had originally wanted to go to London just to play in the pre-release Grand Prix. Yeah. But that's that's not that's not happening at this point. Okay, modern question. What so, is it? So so what do you think what do you think modern's going to be like like I mean, have you played anything? Have you done any magic <laughs> online with the London Mulligan Roll? It's on MTGO. So I guess the answer is no. I have not logged into MTGO. I tried to log into MTGO not that long ago, and the file had to... So this is what happened. I clicked Arena. This is actually this morning. Yeah. <laughs> I clicked Arena. File had to update. Okay? So I'm like, all right. I got like an hour before I got any ready for work. Clicked MTGO. File had to update. I'm like, all right. I like went and made a coffee. I came back. Arena was up and done. Whoever got there first. That's right, fun. yeah, yeah. And I, I went a, a hearty two and three on Arena, cursing the screen, yeah. playing best of ones. And has your Magic Online finished updating yet? You think no, maybe by no the time idea. you got I home? went to work. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Jumps in the shower at that point. I had like a 9 a.m. meeting. So, yeah, so you can you can London Mulligan, you know. And, I mean, you, yeah, that's just what's going on right now. Like, and it was... It's kind of cool, right? It feels like you play more games, but what does it mean? Like, for, for, for this room of, like, you know, vicious cutthroat professionals, you know, who, who are going to maximize this rule, really try to put as much pressure on this rule as possible, what, what do you think it's going to mean? Is Reed Duke going to just win this Pro Tour? Because, you know... Mythic people, Championship. London. Uh, is he going to win this Mythic Championship because he's just got, like, the deck with Thought Seizes and Inquisitions of Kozilex, and he's just playing, like, some green-black mid-range deck because that's what he does. And That's one of the decks that least benefits from the London Mall. Really? Is it true? Is that true? Like... Yeah, decks that can win with their opening hand like are people, the ones. People who are now, like, in, incentivized to, like, look for things with right, their so, opening hands. I mean, so, don't they get punished more? Like, now they, now the things that they're trying to get to get taken away from them by, like, if I'm just... If, I, if I'm looking for uh, removal, you know, hand destruction in, spells? In, in my opinion, decks like... I never play decks like, you know, Treetop Village and Thoughtseize and Modern. That's not a thing yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, and the reason for it is it's generally a low-power strategy and a low-speed strategy, right? And I'm sure. not saying it can't win. Right. 
clearly those decks are putting up finishes sometimes. But but it's both low power and low speed. It could also be Obzon. It doesn't have to be Crane Fly. Yeah, or Jund. Yeah. I mean, Jund at least has Blood Braid Elf, but I'm actually pretty confident that Straight Black Green is better than, yeah. than Jund right now okay. because the Blood Braid Elf isn't actually getting you that much. Yeah. Um, oh, there's like a, a, a monkey grinder coming down as well. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I wonder if it has the monkey's paw. Uh, well, playing a harmonica, it probably does. Okay, anyway. Um, so, my initial thesis is... If you, if like you know, what turn is the average modern game over? I'm just gonna make this up. Is it turn six, turn five? The game's over. Sure. Okay. Part of my decision making process would would be to never play a deck ever that cannot win inside that window. That's when the average. Sure. Right. So obviously, decks that are slower at winning, like blue white control, drag the average up. But I figure like I just don't get any share of the mode or more frequent wins if I if I do that. And so the thing is, there are a fair number of decks that don't require hitting all your land drops to win, just for sake of argument, right? And the more you have something like the London Mug, first of all, I don't think the London Mug is so crazily changing magic. Okay, I don't well, think that's it is. part of my question, sure. But like, what I do think it does is it super helps decks that don't need to hit all their I, land drops. I, I think that if it can be radical, right? Then we're going to find out this weekend. Yeah. So, do you agree with that statement? No. That, that it'll be tested? Nah, I don't think. I, I'm not convinced. I, I mean, I guess... I guess Pro Tours are more developed than they have been in the past, but historically, the best decks are almost never played at the Pro Tour. You know, for the sure. first, like, 90% of the Pro Tours. Like, but now that there's more lag time between sure. set releases and Pro Tours, that's less true. Um... But, like, you know, Red Aggro, for example, is a deck that pretty decently benefits from the London Mulligan. Like, if you could just, like, all right, I have, like, a plausible one-drop, I hit you, and I I uh, light up a stage, I'm just pretty much out of whatever problems I was in now because mm. my cards are so cheap. So decks with the real cheap cards are like that. I think Humans is not helped by the London Mulligan at all. Sure. Because it's, it's such a low-power deck. Like, so Humans is, like, super, super low power. It's one of the least powerful decks, but it's super high synergy. Um, if you're humans and you're like, I have like a super high leverage card for a matchup, like, for example, I'm playing against Storm, and I just want to like, hard mulligan to meddling mage, so I can just name Gifts Ungiven, for example. That might be a thing. That's a question. Oh, or like, if it's game one, like, because now everyone knows everyone's deck list. Yeah. If I hard mulligan in game one with humans, and I know my opponent's playing Storm, I look at the deck list and I'm like, alright, mulligan to meddling mage, name grape shot, I might never lose, right? They have no way to remove meddling mage in game one, right. just as an example. But that's a but that's a an artifact of not just the one mulligan, but also Deckless. everybody Deckless. has everybody's deck list yeah, every yeah. round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nuts though. What's the point of being a genius? Uh, it certainly comes at a cost, but it, it makes for better coverage, right? Where you can show off the deck list while uh, the players are in the feature match area. You can create, you know, there's there's a resistance, like, people don't know this, right? Like, you know, people are like, oh, why didn't we see this deck tech? Right? Like, the reality is, players refuse deck techs. Okay. Right? Because, so, so it, it opens up, you know, not all of them, but sometimes they do that. Like, I don't want, my, my deck is cool. I don't want to show it off on day one. 
I mean, right? I've so been, you just get to look at all the decks from an analytical perspective. I've been involved in like some, you know, some pretty important innovations at Pro Tour level. You know, just as like just as an example, I wasn't on their team, but I did give the Pantheon Goblin Electromancer for their Storm deck when when that debuted, right? Yeah. So uh, I just kind of gave it to them, like the week when they were in Seattle testing or whatever. Like nobody said anything to me, blah blah blah. I'm just like living my life or whatever. Like midway through day one, John texts me. He's just like, "Please don't t- talk to anybody about this. It's actually much better than we thought. Uh, I promise to give you full credit later." Like not that that's the most important thing to me, right? Yeah. But like, it was, it was a monumental improvement in the consistency of the storm deck that they had a huge advantage over people who didn't have that card. And initially when I was just like, you should play Goblin Electromancer, they're like, oh, this is a dude. I don't think it's that good. And I'm like, I think you should try it. Like, why? I'm like, well, if I play this card, one of two things will happen. Either you take your turn off to kill it, right? Or you don't and I kill you. That's actually the fork, right? right. And he's just like, ah, you're exaggerating. He's like, oh no, actually that's what happens, right? Because your rituals all get super cheap and then you just you cast your big spell. Right, everyone believes this to be true now. Because it's true. Yeah. Right? Like you don't let somebody untap with Baralin. Yeah. That's literally like, like whenever a red deck loses, it's because they're like, oh, I can kill you next turn. <laughs> Why try? <laughs> I literally, I mean, I, I beat someone at a, at a, I don't know, maybe when I like an open or something. I literally chained to the rocks as Baral. He's just like, you bring in chain to the rocks against my deck? I have seven creatures. I'm like, if you don't untap with Baral, I'm confident you will never win. Like, <laughs> Very confident you will never win. Like, I just put in all my cards that can mana efficiently kill Baral right. or Goblin Electromancer. And he's like, that's stupid. I'm like, I just 2 owed you. <laughs> like, I mean, did you miss the part when my guys came in sideways and you were like, not casting your gifts ungiven on turn three? So, anyway... The, uh, well, what sound did they make when you killed their... <laughs> not the, by not casting the gifts on giving a turn. Yeah. So anyway, long story short, um, uh, I think that part of the fun of Pro Tours is like having the best deck. And, um, you know, I've been in, in a situation where uh, either I or, you know, you know, friends of mine or whatever had like dramatic deck advantage. Sure. And taking that away, I don't think... I think there's enough coverage, right? Like, there's teams like... You know, when, when I teamed with Ultra Pro, we had a well, team philosophy to just 100% cooperate sure, with the coverage it's, it's team. More, but it's more than just coverage, right? It's also then, in theory, a team, a larger team, is way advantaged under no deck lists than an individual I mean, who does not have the resources that can be used of scouting? to compile information about known information in the tournament. Let's scouting, call it right? Sure, scouting. Yeah, I mean... Scouting is highly beneficial. Uh, sure. And, you know, big teams will tend to have someone who's even at home watching the coverage and gathering information from the preacher match area and relaying it to people playing in the tournament, right? So like, I, I never really understood the politic of scouting. I was going to share a story, right? Sure. Um, so I'm playing for uh, in Vancouver. Which, uh, by the way, is perfectly legal, it's legal. to do, right? It's gathering information. So, so, um, so... I, but it I, feels bad if you don't have access to that information so, as, like, if I just went to the Pro Tour and didn't have access to a team, it would feel bad. So um, I was at a table with, like, multiple Hall of Famers and Pro Tour champions. I start start the table 2-0, and uh, 
and I walk over, and one of the most famous, former player of the year, uh, uh, ex player of the year, is likely who I'm going to play in the in the in the to, to win the table on day two, and uh, but he hasn't finished his match yet, so I've just stood there like writing down all the cards in his deck, and he he uh, calls the judge and has me removed, right? So I'm like, oh, I hope I didn't offend him, right? Like, uh, you know, like, I thought that this was, like, okay to do, right? And it's, you know, it's been a while since I played on the Pro Tour. So I walk over to, like, um, some of my friends. Uh, two, of them, two of them were both, had just played each other at that same table, both Hall of Famers, right? And they're just, like, shooting, shooting the, shooting the shit, and I'm like, oh, well, he just yelled at me and had me removed from the table. Uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 you shouldn't do that. That's terrible. Nobody wants to be insert other Pro Tour champion's name <laughs> who everyone thinks is a jerk, okay? Like, okay, I just didn't know. that He's like, yeah, yeah, it's, you, you shouldn't do that. I'm like, so later I walk over to him after his match and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And he's, and he's just like, oh, no, 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 you were 100% doing the right thing. I also just 100% did the right thing. Like, all right, this is really confusing to me, especially when one of the two Hall of Famers I was just talking to came up to me with his deck list. <laughs> and I'm like, what's this? He's like, every card in his deck. I'm like, I thought that I wasn't supposed to write it down. He's like, yeah, it's confusing. Here's his deck list. <laughs> so then I won the table, right? <laughs> but it, it's really weird, right? Yeah. Like, I was, I still play this too. I'm like, I'm not sure. So so, so removing this whole metagame yeah. of scouting, I think, is very beneficial to leveling the playing field and just making people not feel like they have to participate in something that obviously people have mixed feelings about. I don't have uh, any mixed feelings about anything that is legal. I understand, but certainly, clearly, some of the people you talk to do have mixed oh, feelings no, no. about it. You don't want to get... Well, so first of all, it's not like in Constructed, or it's like, alright, he's playing like green-white tokens, right? right? Or he's playing like, oh, he's playing Grixis Control with Niv-Mizzet, or so. you know, like, somebody says those words to you, you can extrapolate a lot of his deck list. We're talking about Unlimited, yeah. right? It's like, his strategy is to side out all these cards inside and all these cards, you know. This is these are the relevant cards, you know, he's probably gonna do this on turn two. That's very different, yeah, right? Yeah. Than in constructed. But um, what I would say is I don't know, maybe I'm a little old school about this. And I'm, I'm I'm speaking as somebody who's hasn't played in a pro tour in like three years or something. Not currently on like a you know a you know a pro tour team or That's anything. That's the Pantheon walking behind us, right? Like just um, they chatter like a bunch of yeah. school kids. But, like, no, as someone who's in that position, right? Uh, but, like, I say, I actually don't not prefer a uh, uh, an uneven playing field. I actually think the world is better from a tournament outcomes and and from a, from a coverage standpoint if players have highly unequal information. I think that some teams and some players put a lot of effort in to do something that isn't this... Look, you know, Kai will say right now, it's just like, you could just get a 75th percentile or better deck list off of Star City Games right now, and most of the Pro Tour won't have a better sure, deck but should but shouldn't the Pro Tour be rewarding how you play that 75th percentile deck yes, as opposed and, and it to... Does. As opposed to... How lucky, fortunate you are when you get to the Pro Tour to have access to a network of people who not only know how to scout for information, but know what is on the right side of things and on the wrong side of things and what's socially acceptable. 
not only what's legal and what's not legal, okay. but what's socially acceptable and not socially acceptable. And like all of these different so, weird no, incentives. Uh, okay. Let's say there are a hundred possible things you can do well. Okay? Yes. Right? A hundred possible things yeah. that you can do well. I think that the universe is better if winning is aligned with people who do more of those things well succeeding than reducing the number of things that you have to do well. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So, like, if I do 92 of the 100, 100 things well, well, I think that... I'm not saying who should win. I'm not using the word should. I'm saying that everything about magic, who we incentivize, how coverage is, who gets to be heroes to the players watching at home, is all better if the person who does 92 out of those 100 things well is rewarded relative to somebody who does 40 of those things well. And if we reduce the number of things to do well from 100 to 10, and somebody hands you six of those things for free, I think that's much worse. Much, much worse in every possible way. And I think that the thing that you want to have least, both from a narrative standpoint, who we should, who we should cheer for, etc., all gets worse if like somebody like randomly shows up, doesn't put in the work, mostly got lucky and had a lot of it handed. I, to I them. think you're you're attaching narrative to uh, coverage is just narrative. I I understand, but I think you're you're attaching false narrative to someone you're saying like, well, this person got lucky. No, uh, no, no. Certainly, someone gets lucky sometimes. Yeah. Magic is like more than sixty percent skill. As, as someone who has spent a lot of time talking to people, one, one of the things that I will miss most about London. Yeah is on Thursday being at the foot of the stairs when people are coming into the Pro Tour and personally talking to people playing in their first event. I love doing that. It's one of my one of my favorite things in my career work, work with Magic is getting to talk to people on the eve of the most exciting tournament of their career. And so I have a lot of empathy for them and a lot of the idea that, that, that some of these players get there and that there are these things that happen that they are not privy to, that they that might even not feel like, you know, I'm not saying that they're inappropriate, but might feel inappropriate, um, is, is, is just kind of a feel bad for, dude, you put a lot of work into getting to this event. You should have the level's playing field on which to prove yourself and to earn another opportunity to get back okay. here. here. So here, I'm, I'm all for this. So maybe I'm just an old person, right? I am, compared to most people playing on the Pro Tour, yeah. much older than yeah. almost all of them, okay? Yeah. So so when I went to the, it was at the Mythic Invitational, Yeah. Andrew Cunio comes up to me and he's like... He's older than I am. Yeah, and so he was the oldest player in the Mythic Invitational. And he's yeah. like, he's like, BDM, you're not by chance older than me, are you? <laughs> I'm much older than him. <laughs> You're like pushing 10 years older. I said, I am older than you and Dana Fisher combined. <laughs> but she's like seven. <laughs> she's eight or nine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, but yes, anyway. So what I would say is every single player at that Pro Tour slash Mythic Championship, whether or not this was their first one, had a first one. Sure. Every single sure. one. And, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to improve those first experiences. Okay. What I think, I mean, like I said, maybe... I, and I don't think I'm resentful of my experience. I think I had a good experience of the times yeah. that I played. I think it's just like, you want to get a good network, you earn it, okay? You earn it by putting in, you putting in value, not to the, not to the universe at large, to the people who you're going to pull up and who are going to pull you up. 
and you surround yourself with good people and they will reward you and you and you show them value and they will reward you and vice versa and nobody nobody starts off in that position and the thing is I think a lot look, if you look at the the Conley Woodses and the Brad Nelsons people who are big stories of like oh here's somebody who's like a first timer made top 16 made top 8 or whatever most of the time they showed initial value before they got on big teams or sure. redo absolutely by being creative sure. and they said like hey look at the level of creativity that I can bring to the, to un- uneven what is an otherwise even playing my, my, field maybe you should want to include me in your team guys my counter argument to this is this will accelerate the process by which people can demonstrate their value as players, deck builders. No, it doesn't. It annihilates the ability to do that. No, because you're, you're saying that the value of a player comes from this sort of extracurricular activity of having no. access to information. Yes, but the access to the information is often created by the players themselves. Okay, here's an example. You did you did uh, coverage at World 2007 in New York, right? Yeah. The famous Chapin versus Nassif. Yeah, yeah. Right? On day one, when every player with that deck went five and two or better. Yep. And, like, there were seven total players. Two of them were in the top four against each other, mm-hmm. right? The world is made profoundly worse if what is special and what is secret and what, it, you know, about that deck and about that team just becomes commoditized. It is so much worse. I, I mean, it's not like everyone gets the opportunity to adjust to that deck with their card choices or sure, but they, build that deck for themselves and suddenly play it. Yeah, but It okay. just means that people have some information that, of what's coming. Okay, here's the thing. Um, do you remember the dumbest thing that I ever did? Oh. I mean, I do a lot of dumb things, right? Do you remember when I made the... Missing an Eidolon trigger? Not remembering the I legendary permanent thing I in states. I didn't literally. I at least won that match. All right. Okay? I think the dumbest thing. Oh, not the dumbest thing. So one of the dumb things. It's I not agree. like you didn't tap your werebears. That was me. That one was of the, the dumb things that I did. Was I made this strategy by which my mono red deck that Josh Rabbits used to make top eight could never be beaten by a blue deck that didn't understand my sideboard strategy. Sure. Okay? And then I went and explained why it was an unbeatable strategy to Herbert. Oh, yes. And, um, and, uh, who was his best player? I can't remember. And Neil Reeves, okay? Neil Reeves, yeah. And they didn't really have the tools to win, but of the tools that they had, they figured out the best way to sideboard in order to play against this strategy, right? Yep. Because if you were just playing with Nassif's mono blue strategy, sure. there wasn't even any way you could win, right? Sure, sure. I mean, this is one of the most unstoppable sideboard strategies in the history of constructed magic. And I gave them... Promptly the, stopped, thanks to Mike. <laughs> yeah, I literally gave them the blueprint. I was like, all right, this is... Like, Neil was just like, wow, that is pretty unstoppable. But at least so, if we did these things, we would have a fighting so what, chance. And what, what was it again? So... Uh, the deck had eight creatures in the main deck, which were Arc Slogger and Solemn Simulacrum, but did much of its damage from burn cards, right? It's like a mono-red deck with Sensei's Divining Top and uh, Wayfarer's Ball. I remember Seth Byrne even, who was a, you know, a, a burn, you know, a burn guru himself, was just like, when, a, when somebody plays Basic Mountain uh, Wayfarer's Bobble, you should probably respect them instead of laughing because they're going to beat you on turn seven, right? So, so... The deck is very far behind against Mono Blue in game one because 
It has relatively few creatures. The mono blue deck has like four Vidalk and Shackles starting, and uh, it has enough counters to beat everything, right? So the sideboard strategy was to side out all the creatures, all eight creatures, in anticipation of them bringing in bribery, because bribery was like one of the main sideboard cards they had. And there was also a color switching card. So I think a flashback color switching card or some buyback or something you could switch multiple times because the, the default red strategy was to try to boil blue mm. because it was such a bad matchup but if you could boil them at least you'd get enough of an advantage to and so they'd switch colors on you and then boil all the mountains instead right boil is uh, R3 instant destroy all islands but if you could switch the color then uh, it would destroy all mountains instead right so so the strategy was to side out all your creatures so that now deadens all their Vidalcan Shackles, those become dead draws. And then you also deaden all their their um, their uh, briberies, because they're going to try to get your Arc Slogger. Because like, if you could untap with an Arc Slogger, you all, you, I think 100% of the time you'll win if you untap with an Arc Slogger. It just, right. It'll just win again, right? So, um, so the in this context. So our strategy was to side out all these cards, bring in Fireballs, and bring in... Um, bring in... Uh, three copies of Bosiju. Bosiju is a land from the Kamigawa block. Comes into play tapped. When you tap it, you take three, but your spell is uncountable. Yeah. Right? So we just spent all of our resources just getting land and play, and then you just fireball. Like, you just, just magma, you just use magma jets, yeah. Sensei's a mining top, wait for his bobble to just get, like, five land and play, and then just, like, they can't kill you in time, right? So you just fireball them, like, three or four times, or, like, wave of reckoning yeah. and it's actually like really good because there's also a pulse that if you had a lower life totally just rebuy it so you just deal damage yourself so you could keep rebuying the pulse they can't actually kill you because yeah. they have like a, a bunch of like spire golems as their beatdown right so but it's a horrible matchup because they can like the Dalkin your guys so if their deck is just full of dead cards and slow clock it's like I mean and the other thing is this is the kind of deck it can't get the jump on someone they literally need 15 turns to win naturally, right? So it doesn't matter how manuscript you are, you will get out of it in time, right? To beat them with this fireball strategy. So I was just like, yeah, this room's full of blue. I made the best, and this is really just one of the best sideboard masterpieces of all time. Just undoes like the worst matchups that you could have. Yeah. It makes makes the worst matchups in the room into like unlosables, right? So, uh, I mean, and then the, the, the White Wing was the other really popular deck, and we had like the other unbeatable. Here's seven cards for blue. Here's eight cards for White Weenie. Never lose, right? So and then our deck was already good against Tooth and Nail. So it was a really, really well prepared deck. So then I just explained this, and then I was like, "Hey, you can't lose." Blah blah blah. So Neil and and Herbert Holtz were just like, "Wow, if we if we just like play this game, we're definitely gonna lose." So they brought in like dudes. <laughs> Just four fours. Well, not just four and fours. And Uyo. Uyo was right. The one. So Uyo's not a card you would normally bring in, right? But so Uyo's a guy. He has the, he's a four four for six. Four four for six. <laughs> has the ability. You return a land. Right? It's like two mana. Yeah. And return. It might even be return two lands. Yeah, but you can copy a. Or you spell. copy a spell. Yes. Yeah. So it was really hard to fireball so, them out without, without Uyo killing you. If they, if they had Uyo out and yeah. untapped mana, and if, as long as you're dead, like, if you had to direct damage that only targeted a creature, yeah. that would be great. You could kill Uyo. But even if your, like, fireball for four is going to kill Uyo, they could just sink ten mana in, copy it five times, and throw the fireball at you five times. Yeah, so, 
Yeah, Neil after was just like, thanks for explaining that to me. We would have never brought in Uyo. Because <laughs> default, you're worried about getting boiled, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. Like, why who would ever tap six? Yeah. We didn't have boil. So. That's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, good discussion. I'm going to have to get going soon, but I feel like this was a good like debate show episode, like a yeah. little bit more. It's like kind of like pardon the interruption, if you've ever watched that. Like, I felt like I was like Tony Horn of Greedheiser, and you were like Michael Wilbender. I don't These know what any of stuff I, you're I, talking about. KYT will know. Yeah, well, I know that uh, Brian G, before before becoming uh, an international podcast superstar, had, had, a, had a podcast called Pardon the Interrupt on, yeah. on, uh, on Manna Deprived. Right. That was a website in yeah. Canada. Yeah, past. Pardon the Interrupt is based off Pardon the Interruption. Well, anyway, yeah, I just think that the world is made a little bit less interesting uh, based on these changes. I, I agree with that, but ultimately, I think that the benefits of it uh, outweigh those outweigh those costs. But every and we'll see. I mean, maybe every change benefits some people while hurting some other people. Though. Sure. So, like, you're, I I just hate anything that takes away from people who are working the hardest. That is the I really really dislike that. I, I just I disagree fundamentally that this is. But they're working. You can't disagree with the fact that they are working harder. They are doing more things. But I, I, I But they still. I think they still get rewarded for that work. Yeah, they get like way less reward. They get like one percent reward instead of twenty percent. I think you're over attributing. Um, I've been the beneficiary of a scouting team. Sure. That is a well, substantial but, but, amount of but, value. But this is, we're gonna yes, and I I don't think it's fair that that should be that that have big that big an impact on the outcome of of a game or match. And so I, I think Magic is a better I think it is a better intellectual sport. With this, if you could look, if you could remove scouting. While preserving decklist integrity, like siloed decklists, then that would be awesome. But if you can't, then I think the only answer is to put everyone on a level playing field. It creates less feel bad experiences for people to take back home to their communities. Don't even bother trying to play in this PTQ, Will Price. Everyone there just scouts the decks. And then you're just screwed when you go play anyone good, you know. And, like, the reality is, if Will, if Will goes and plays someone good, Will should probably just lose because he's Will and that was Reed Duke. If there are... And... But he should at least have feel like he had an even footing for if it. There so, are legal but I really recourses. have to get going after this. I just think that people, you know, should be able to take advantage of the legal recourses instead of changing the rules. I think it is fine to change them then. Now they can continue to take advantage of all their legal recourses. All right. Well, all right. we are not going to come to an accord on this, so I'll just stab you in your sleep, uh, and then I win. Sure. So when you read about me dead from a pair of kitchen shears in my back, you'll know... That you should scout your opponent's decks. Yeah, I wonder how how will I have gotten into your apartment, Carla? Hey, Carla, let me in. I need to murder Brian. Our, our, front, our front door barely locks. It blows open. Then we wake up some morning. We live in an apartment. We wake up some mornings, and our front door is just wide open. Honestly. You remember the werewolves? Yes, it's very werewolfy. Oh my god. All right, we got to get going though. This has been Brian David Marshall, Michael J. Flores for Top Eight Magic. Thanks for listening, everybody.